Hey there, welcome to Foundations of Biblical Eldership. I am so happy to have you on board and viewing this together with other people. Uh, my name is Corey Williams and uh, it's a joy to be able to speak into such a significant topic. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this course and uh, how I imagine it could be used. Um, I've got in mind a few different people who would be, uh, you know, members of a potential audience group. And so, um, first off, there might be some of you who are currently elders, uh, people who are already in the position of elders at your church. Uh, certainly elders from our church will be watching this, uh, but you might already be an elder and you're just trying to firm up your convictions about what it is that you are called to do. And so I hope that this proves to be helpful for you and encouraging and inspiring and instructive and all of that. Um, so welcome aboard. A uh, second group that I've got in mind while making this is the group of people who aspire to the office of overseer. In fact, the Bible tells us that anyone who is desiring of that is pursuing a noble task. And so we want to do the very best job that we can of uh, creating a uh, developmental process for potential elders and uh, helping potential elders to see what it is that they're pursuing and then some logical steps to, to help them in that uh, developmental process. And um, maybe that's you. And certainly if you're a part of our church and you're kind of aiming at one day being an elder at our local church, then we want you to be uh, well informed of what it is that you are aspiring to. And so hopefully these videos will help you in that task. Um, a third audience that I have in mind as we're making this is the audience of regular church members who simply want to understand how spiritual leadership works in a local church. And so you may have uh, clicked through to this video, to this course, because you're just wondering, what is an elder? And what do they actually do? And what bearing does that have on my life? And so I hope that some of those questions are answered for you in the course of our, our time together. Um, but this is the foundational level, foundations of biblical eldership. So the way that this will work is I'll take um, <clears throat> passages from the Bible that speak directly to the office of elder. Um, and we'll unpack those one at a time. And uh, in, the, in the first um, foundational piece of this course, it'll mainly be that. It'll mainly be looking at the nature and function of elders. Now, in future lessons, we'll, we'll unpack the, the nuts and bolts of what elder teams actually do, uh, how decision-making rights are distributed, and how elder teams relate to one another, and what they actually do on a week-by-week -week basis. But let's get going with some foundational stuff. And to do that, I want to take you into the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, please do turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 to 9. Um, so I will read them. They'll also be up, the verses will be up at the bottom of the screen. And uh, I'll read them, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. <clears throat> the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, 
He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy, to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word together, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us. Help us to know what true spiritual leadership is and what the office of eldership is. And help us to see, Lord, the glory that you have given to the local church. So Lord, we pray that you would use this time together to that end, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here, in this first session, I want to show you three different things. I want to show you the necessity of elders, um, that they are not an optional thing for a church, but they actually are necessary, and therefore thought and consideration needs to be given to what kind of person should occupy that office and how you would go about finding them and all those different things, the necessity of elders. The second thing that I want to show you here from the text is the importance of their character. So as you consider the kind of person that you would appoint into the office of eldership, what really matters about them? Are we looking at resumes? Are we looking, what are we looking for when we're looking for elders? And, and on that second point, what I'm saying is, what I find in the text is, there is an importance of character. And the third thing that we'll glance at briefly today is the work of eldership. We won't cover all the ground. We're simply going to introduce some of the concepts and I'll show you what's here in Titus chapter 1, but we will also give consideration to the work of elders. So let's get after it. First off, we find the necessity of elders. Now, there's plenty of evidence here in the text of the necessity of the role of eldership. Let me show it to you here in verse 5. Paul, writing to a young protege, says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he is saying the reason why you are in the situation that you're in is for this very purpose, for the appointing of elders. Now, he he describes it like this, um, that, that he's not only uh, appointing elders, but he's completing this unfinished task. So let's look at that. Uh, a little bit in detail. First, let me show you how he opens the letter itself. Paul has in mind, as he's writing this letter, he has in mind the good of the people of God. In fact, that's how he opens his letter. That's why he's writing. And he's going to connect what he wants for the good of the people of God. He's going to connect that to this idea of eldership. Okay, so let's watch it unfold here. Verse 1. He re it reads like this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So he's, it's a mouthful, but what he's saying is, I'm writing for the sake of God's people. I want them to experience this growth in their experience of God, to further their faith. 
and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Okay, so he's writing this letter. He's putting the purpose statement on the front end. And then what he does is he connects the dots between the good of God's people and the necessity of eldership. Titus, the reason you are in Crete is so that you might finish this, this unfinished work and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's connecting the dots then saying, look, the, the church needs spiritual leaders. I want you to put right the remaining things. That's the literal translation as Bill Mounts has indicated. What Titus needs to do is to put right what is remaining. There's something that is still necessary for the church and Titus is then sent as an apostolic delegate and he's saying, you have a job to do, young man, and it is to finish the work. Well, he connects the dots then by saying the work is unfinished. Here's a part of what, will, what it'll take to complete the task. Appoint elders in every town. This is what he's telling him. And appoint elders in every town. Uh, there's this connectedness between the idea of the work to be done and the necessity of appointing spiritual leaders in every place. So he is saying this reality of spiritual leadership, specifically the office of elder, overseer, pastor, which are those are used synonymously, and I'll show that to you in due time. But he's saying the work that needs to happen for the people of God has an interconnectedness with spiritual leadership. Namely, there is a necessity for appointed elders in every local congregation, in every town, in every place that the church shows up. There needs to be qualified leaders there. So Titus, do that job. Do that job. Samuel Miller, the late uh, Presbyterian pastor and writer, uh, he put it like this. <clears throat> he says, in this sacred community, talking about the church, government is absolutely necessary. When you look at the church, the sacred community of God's people, he's saying government or leadership. He's saying leadership is absolutely necessary. Samuel Miller goes on to talk about the, the reality of that necessity of leadership showing up in personal experience and church history and certainly in the scriptures. We need spiritual leaders to govern the church. We need people who have been appointed to the task of leadership to lead the charge of helping the people of God understand what it is that they're called to do. So this reality is a significant reality. It is what Paul instructs Titus to do. In fact, he directly commands him to do it. If you look at the end of verse 5, it reads like this, as I directed you. Now that's the NIV version, but if you look at a more literal translation, it's more like a command, as I commanded you. And in fact, that word that is translated by the NIV to direct um, it shows up in other places in the New Testament. So let me just show you a few different examples of how that word is used in other New Testament writings. The same word is used for the Lord's command to build the temple in Acts 7.44. The Lord commands 
the uh, construction of the temple as described by Stephen in Acts 7.44. In another instance, the emperor Claudius used the word, the one that's translated here to directed, he uses this uh, word, but he's ordering people to leave a particular area. So as the emperor, he's saying, I am ordering you that these people need to vacate this particular geographic location. So that's a strong word. That's a very strong word. Again, it shows up in Acts 23 when it's talked about um, a, a group of soldiers whose military commander has given them orders, given them directives, giving, given them this same exact word, has given them orders to complete a particular task there. So when Paul says, I, I want you to go and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He's saying, this is what I specifically gave you orders to do. That's how significant eldership is. It is, it is not an optional idea for the local church. It is something that the apostle Paul himself says, this is what is needed in every place. We need spiritual leaders. Titus, you have been left here for this particular task. Appoint elders in every town. Now, I've given you some evidence from the text here in Titus chapter 1. Let me show it to you in a narrative form in Acts chapter 14. So this is the, in Titus chapter 1, we're looking at the instructions regarding the appointment of elders. But let me show it to you in narrative form. It really was the practice of Paul and his ministry team to do this very thing. So in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are engaged in missionary church planting. So as was their custom, they were um, set apart by the Holy Spirit to do this work. They would travel to different locations and they would preach a church into existence. And here's what I mean. They would evangelize. They would proclaim the good news of the gospel. And what happens when the gospel is proclaimed is people hear it and they come to saving faith. So the gospel is being preached. People are responding in faith. Now you've got a community of believers and they're in a specific geographic location. So you have the seed form of a local church. You've got a local church that has been evangelized into existence. So they're doing that. Paul and Barnabas going place to place preaching the gospel, people are responding in faith, they're now gathering together. And that happens in Acts chapter 14 in Iconium. We see that in verse 1. Now when they're in Iconium, they're doing this ministry and they, after the church exists, they start to instruct them and help them and there are certain you know things that need to happen for a local church to uh, be well established. And so they're teaching and instructing them, but in Acts 14, a problem arises, okay? So in Acts 14, verses 5 and 6, listen to this. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them, talking about Paul and Barnabas, and stone them. So there's a group of people that are looking at Paul and Barnabas and their ministry, and they're saying, we want to mistreat them. We want them gone. We don't, we do not like what they're doing. And so uh, their plan is to mistreat them and stone them. But Paul and Barnabas found out about this, 
this plot, and they fled to the Lyconian cities. So knowing that there's a hostility toward them, they peace out. They, they leave that city uh, to go to another place where they could be safe so that the baby church would no longer be harassed and so that they would no longer be an object of contempt and they go away from there, okay? So there's this baby church. They have to leave it. Now what are they going to do? Well, skip down to verse 21 and following. They go back, okay? They go back to Iconium and they do it with a very specific intention. So let's look at it here, verses 21 to 23. <clears throat> then they, Paul and Barnabas, returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Okay, now this is kind of odd because this is not the normal way we would think about encouragement, but here's what they're saying to them. We want to encourage you. We want to strengthen you. We want you to remain, remain true to the faith. Here's our message then. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, they're saying that suffering that you're experiencing, that challenge that you're experiencing, that, that difficulty and that hostility that's happening in, in your world right now, it's not, it's not indicating that God is absent from you or, or doesn't care about you. But in fact, we know this to be true. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Okay, now what happens next is the completion of what it is that they returned for. So listen to this. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Okay. Now, I don't want you to see this as disparate ideas. These are not different things that are happening here. They planted a church in Iconium and they were forced to leave. Now they return back in the midst of severe opposition and hatred. Why do they do that? Well, because the, the future of the church is at stake. The work there is unfinished. Their job, as they understand it, is not only to evangelize a church into existence, Every local church needs good spiritual leaders to ensure its fidelity to the gospel. They go back into that hostile territory with that message of encouragement. There's a connection between faithfulness and spiritual leadership and suffering. Now, I'll try to show that to you along the way. I, I have found that to be the case in my recent studies of the topic of eldership. I think there's an intimate connection between faithful eldering and a willingness to suffer for, those, for the sake of those that you're serving. And so what's happening here is they go back because they realize this is what is needed for the church. Elders are a necessity. So they appoint elders in each church and pray and fast and commit them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So here's the point for us. The church, every local church, needs elders. That's why in this early lesson, I'm pointing out this reality. There is a necessity for elders. Elders are not an optional uh, thing for a church. They are required. And if elders are so important, then the appointment of them is critical for the life and health of a church 
and getting it right will determine the future of the church. So you either appoint the right kind of individuals to this work and experience health and vitality and viability and sustainability and all these other things. You either get this right and your church is set up well to succeed in its faithful calling, or you get it wrong and you hamstring the whole project itself. So the church needs elders. That's why we're having this discussion today. We recognize the necessity of eldership. Well, the second thing that we find here is the importance of character within that eldership. So um, what happens here in Titus and in other places is that the emphasis of the Bible is put on the kind of people who will occupy that office. And um, what we find here is actually a list of qualifications. And I'm not going to go through all the details of it today because in an upcoming session, what we'll do is we'll take the two different lists. You've got one here in Titus chapter 1, and then you've got a very similar list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it's Paul in both places talking about the requirements for elders. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll overlay them. We'll, we'll put both of those passages on top of each other and we'll look at the totality of what they say requiring, you know, uh, in regard to the requirements to be an elder. So we'll do that in an upcoming session. But today what I want to do is just kind of zoom back and go, wow, look at the emphasis of the text. The text is emphasizing the importance of character. That, that getting the right kind of people into the role appears to be more important than even describing what they'll do once they're in that role. So in other words, vetting and training and properly discerning the, the people who should be appointed to that office, that is the important part to get right. So what we need to do then is clear away a lot of misinformation about eldering and get to this, uh, what I would think is the scriptural weightedness of what we need to be focusing on. And that is specifically the importance of character for those doing the job. So instead of rushing to talking about uh, all these other things and their important things, um, like how an elder team functions and decision-making rights and uh, what an elder meeting ought to look like and who should lead that and what kinds of things are discussed there and how are decisions actually made and do we follow the, you know, Robert's rules of order when you have a meeting and all those sor sorts of things. That's important and we'll come to that in due time. But the Bible is more clear and places more emphasis not on the nitty-gritty details of eldering and, and the things that I've just described, but rather it puts all the weight on the kind of people that you ought to appoint to that role. So in other words, getting the right kind of people is more important than describing what they do. So what we're looking at here then is this emphasis on character, and you see it there in verse 6. It says, it says, um, if anyone, well, it says in verse 6, an elder must be blameless. So the kind of person, Titus, that you are called to appoint, the kind of person, Corey, that you're called to appoint into this significant role, 
they must be blameless. And in fact, um, I was surprised when I was looking at uh, the text here and consulting resources, Bill mounts in his commentary as he translates the Greek into the English, he, he notes that it doesn't just say that an elder must be blameless, but it actually puts it in, a, in an interesting way. It says, if anyone is above reproach. There's a word in there that's basically saying, not only must they be blameless, but the kind of people who you are going to appoint are this way. If there is anyone, if anyone is above reproach, that's the kind of person you appoint. So in, let me put it like this. Finding elders is actually just doing a grace hunt. Finding elders is simply paying attention to what God is already up to. There are people who are qualified to elder because the Holy Spirit has been at work in them. They are these kinds of people. There's wisdom, and I've heard this saying in multiple places, but when you're looking for an elder, what you're looking for, excuse me, is somebody who's already behaving as one. You're looking for somebody who's already reflecting these characteristics. So an elder must be blameless. And what the text actually seems to be saying here is your job is to find the people who are already meeting those requirements. Now, certainly there's another way to, to handle this, and that is to say that the elder requirements are also the curriculum for developing people, for discipling people into greater and greater maturity. So on the one hand, it is the requirement for whether or not you could be appointed to the task, but it also becomes for us the curriculum whereby we are discipling and developing potential elders to one day become people who could be appointed. Okay, finally, let's look at the work of elders. We'll be brief here. The work of elders really is uh, what could be called knowledge work. Now, knowledge work is in the realm of ideas. And <clears throat> this was a hard concept for me. When I was called into ministry, uh, I grew up on a tree farm. And so work, in, in my mind, was all about physical labor. Uh, physical labor made sense to me. And then getting into pastoral ministry, being called into the ministry, there's this new concept for me that took a long time for me to warm to. And it's the idea of knowledge work. So not every kind of work is like working with your hands and, you know, producing something and creating something that you can visibly see. There's also a realm of work that, that falls in the domain of knowledge. And elders have a task to do in that domain. So look at verse 9. It reads like this. He, the elder, the elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So here's something that the elder has to be capable in. The elder has to have a grasp on sound doctrine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. An elder must have that body of knowledge that he has gleaned from the book and must hold firmly to it. He must understand sound doctrine and then he must be able to wield that sound doctrine appropriately. 
So the kind of people that we need in, in eldership would be people who are who have an aptitude for knowledge work, and specifically the kind that I've just described, a firm grasp of sound doctrine and the ability to wield it for the good of others. So if you want to be an elder, but you don't like thinking about things, if you want to be an elder, but you don't like dealing with things in the abstract and thinking through ideas and their consequences, if you want to be an elder, but you're uh, resistant to knowledge work, you go, I don't want to sit around and I don't want to have discussions about ideas and I don't want to have to read a lot. I don't want to have to engage a lot. Then, then maybe eldering isn't for you because a part of the work of eldering is the ability to, to discern ideas and to be able to see whether or not they are compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the implication of those ideas as they're going to play out in the life of a congregation. So elders need to be capable of this kind of work, knowledge work. And it's going to show up in two ways that we find here in verse 9. On the one hand, elders have to be able to take the, the sound doctrine, the firm grasp of this trustworthy message, and they have to be able to helpfully apply it to the lives of the people in the congregation. There's a teaching ministry here, and I'm not talking about preaching, and I'm not talking about being able to command the attention of a large crowd or anything like that, but every elder needs to have an aptitude to take the message of Jesus Christ and make applications to real people in their real lives. And so it says here, so that he can encourage others by this sound doctrine. You have to have the doctrine, but then you have to be able to encourage others with it. You have to be able to use it. You have to be able to wield it appropriately for the good of other people. And then, here's the negative aspect of it. You also need to hold on to this trustworthy message and understand it and have this sound doctrine coming from it in order that you can refute those who oppose it. See, there's an issue here, and it is the issue of false teaching. If you look at the context of... Um, the letter to Titus and what's going on in that particular location, you'll find out very quickly that it is a church that is severely threatened by false ideologies. There is false teaching going on. And if you simply read verses 10 and following the very next paragraph from the section we've ended in, uh, you'll find out how bad it truly is. The church in Crete is suffering from false teaching. Now, this is not simply a first century problem. It's very much a modern problem. And I think the, in, the internet has amplified that. I think that there are all kinds of false teaching out there. And I'm uh, honestly, I'm somewhat convinced that the American church is really poor at discerning false teaching. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think that um, honestly, spiritual leaders aren't doing a good enough job of uh, doing what what is called of them here. Uh, I don't think that elders are uh, as mindful of this as we should be. Um, and I think that honestly that there are kind of uh, some polarizing features about figuring out how to deal with false teaching. I mean, on the one hand, you've got these watchdog ministries that are incredibly contentious. They care deeply about sound doctrine, but then they go and they, they beat people up who don't totally agree. 
And actually, being contentious is a disqualifier, as we'll come to find out. And then on the other hand, you've got these people who have a desire not to engage in conflict. And so they avoid controversial things and they don't rebuke people for false ideas or anything like that. And so on the two ends of the spectrum, you've got these kind of um, faithful but angry people. And then you've got these people who are uh, reluctant to actually have firm convictions. And both of these groups are doing great harm. Gospel eldership is somewhere in the middle where you say, I hold firmly to the sound doctrine, to the trustworthy message. I, I use it in a way that is helpful, that builds people up, and I'm able to refute those who oppose this message. Let me show it to you from a couple different places. I think uh, holding these things in tension is a good thing for us to do. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, it reads like this. It's kind of telling us the, the vibe of um, elders, of pastors, of people who have this job. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it reads like this. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So here's kind of the, the general vibe of pastoral ministry. Pastors, elders, overseers are to be kind and gentle and patient even with their opponents. That is kind of the baseline calling for spiritual leaders. However, in Titus, we're being reminded that sometimes the errors are so grave that you actually have to use a very stern and firm voice. When somebody's in danger, you don't just say, oh, you know what, I think it'd be in your best interest for you to maybe step away from that cliff that you're about to fall off of. Sometimes you, you look at your the person that you love and you speak with a tone that conveys seriousness. You get away from that ledge right now. And you're not trying to be mean to that person. It's, a, it's an activity of love whereby you're saying, I want to ensure that you are safe, that you are okay. And what you are flirting with is so dangerous that it could be damning. And so in Titus, it, it reads like this in chapter 1, verse 11. It says, they, the false teachers, they must be silenced. Titus, you have a job, appoint elders. Part of the reason why is there's this false teaching going on. The elders have to be able to refute those who oppose them. And those teachers, they don't just have to be, you know, gently dealt with. They have to be silenced. Goes on to say in verse 13, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Speak sternly to them so that they could be rescued from this grave danger. Well, let me wrap this up. Um, as we close this thing out, what we've looked at so far are three different things. First off, elders are absolutely necessary for the health of the church. And I hope that you see that and feel that and agree with me on that point. Elders are absolutely necessary for the health of the local church. Secondly, there's a reality about elders that they need to have unassailable character. 
They need to have a character about them that we're trying to discern already exists or train people in that direction. And we're going to only appoint the people who have that blameless character and reputation. So secondly, elders must have this strength of character. And third and finally, elders have a work to do. And it's in the realm of knowledge work. It's an awareness of sound doctrine, what it is, what it isn't, a firm grasp of this trustworthy message. They have to be aware of the good news of the gospel and some of the nuances of it. And that's why we train our elders with systematic theology and biblical teaching. And we're trying to make sure that the elders understand some of the nuances of some of the issues, the theological issues that they might bump into. We want them to have that knowledge work so that they we're all on the same team and we're all speaking the same language about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we're, we're um, asking that the elders would be capable in wielding that knowledge appropriately, using it to build up the church through the teaching ministries of the church and using that knowledge of the message of the gospel to refute those who oppose it. Now, if we can get the elders on board with that, we will be in a very, very good place. So thank you for watching this today. I hope that this has been instructive and helpful. Let me pray and we will close out our time. Lord, we ask right now that you would multiply the tribe of elders, that there would be more and more and more people who are spiritually fit, who are spiritually um, qualified to be appointed to the office of overseer. And Lord, we ask that you would give them strength of character, and then give them a firm grasp of the good news of the gospel, the trustworthy message that has been taught to them. Let them use that for the building up of your church, your most holy church, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would build that bride and make her ready for your return. May you use spiritual leaders to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you.